Good morning. Good morning. I'm glad you're here. Happy Father's Day. So if you are a father, happy Father's Day. If you had a father, happy Father's Day. So whatever. I was telling people, my, my children uh, took me out, took us out for Father's Day celebration yesterday. And we had a big meal in the middle of the day, which I never do. So the rest of the afternoon, I was comatose. So. <laughs> Something. Would you check and make sure your cell phone is off? And as always, thanks to the four people back there, John and Lauren and Rodney and Tim, who make it possible for those of you who are watching this from all over, we get the... I don't, but I get told about the analytics or people who watch on their life from all across the United States, a couple of people in uh, Europe, Scotland. Uh, so welcome to this gathering. And as always, uh, if you're within a 25-mile radius of here, the main thing you miss when you come here is the energy of being with these good people. So I hope you will, you will come. So let's do as we do and begin in silence. Um, our goal here is just to be present, to be open and awake. And may grace be in our heads and in our thinking. May grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. May grace be in our ears and in our hearing. May grace be in our mouth and in our speaking. May grace be in our heart and in our understanding. And may grace be at our end and at our departing. I heard um, Christian Wyman say in a conference that we got to attend with him and Eugene Peterson, a very small gathering actually. Eugene Peterson is the guy who translated the Bible that his version of the Bible I usually use when I'm reading from the Bible. And I heard Christian Wyman say, there is something to be said by learning something by heart. So there are some set pieces that you can memorize. That, that's one of them right there. It's easy to do. This is easy to memorize. So there's several others that you could put in your brain. And as you know, I want this time to contribute to a deepening awareness of who you are, who God is, and who our neighbor is, because that person, those people are us. And taking our clue from Jesus, who excluded no one, no matter who you are, where you are in your spiritual journey, you are celebrated here. So <clears throat> this is likely the last time that I'm going to push this right now. I'll put it on the website, but I just want you to save the date. This is firm. Um, this woman um, who is considered the godmother of the Enneagram in, in the United States. Um, Suzanne Stabile uh, is coming to be with us on an all-day Saturday uh, on the 1st of October. She'll be preaching both services um, that next day and also being in here. And the focus of her work is going to be on relationships. And I mentioned last week that you could either get... Um, the, the Sojourners magazine is one that you should probably know about anyway, but that book, The Enneagram Made Easy, is a book that I usually recommend to people who have no knowledge of the Enneagram. As I've said, it's one you can give to an adolescent, but it's not dumbed down. Uh, it's a way to become acquainted not only with your number, but with other people's number as well. And the focus of Suzanne's work is going to be on the Enneagram and relationships which I think is really going to be very helpful. I'm a seven on the Enneagram. I'm married to a four. Usually no two numbers marry, uh, except with the exception of maybe sixes. 
sixes can sometimes get together and form a union, but usually we don't. And and um, knowing what your Enneagram number is will acquaint you with what your passion is, and your passion can, of course, be negative or positive, you know. The seven is called the Epicurean, so the Epicureans, you know, can't get enough of things. We want more. That does not apply to me, but um, I was looking to see if she would throw something or something. <laughs> you know, if one magic trick is good, more is better, uh, that, that sort of thing. So I'll remind you of that. So lots of stuff to get to today. And um, by the way, um, for those of you who don't know, um, at the end of class when I rush out of here, I'm not being rude. I have to go back to work. Usually, not every Sunday, but usually I'm in the service across the way, and that's that's true today. What I love about the summertime when the clergy wear albs is that I don't have to wear a tie, which is cool. They're really hard to put on, but um, it, you don't have to wear a tie, and that's a, that's a good thing. So um, last week, Roddy Young and I sat up here, and we had great fun. Uh, I love Roddy. That was that was wonderful. And if you didn't get to see or hear that, you can go on the website, which I'm going to mention in a minute, and watch it. And uh, the reason we did that was that I was preaching both services last Sunday. And if you didn't get to hear that, you can go on the website and watch that and sit there and read it or listen to it and wonder, why didn't lightning strike that man? So anyway... We, 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 we crafted that time <clears throat> last week to deal with questions that you had, and uh, there were a lot of questions that you had that we just didn't get to, and that wasn't Roddy's fault, that was mine. So um, I'm going to try to, this class is built around today, all those questions that didn't get answered. And many of those questions, um, the majority of questions that we got that... Um, not all of them can be summed up in uh, my speaking about the steering committee and um, what the steering committee is, how it functions, what's going to happen to ordinary life when Bill kicks the bucket. Um, <clears throat> I have a really good joke here, but I can't say it because we're online and I think it might get me in trouble. I'll tell you about it privately, but... So um, I began teaching Ordinary Life in uh, June of 1998. Ordinary Life celebrates its 25th anniversary this month. I've been teaching 25 years here. And as a condition for teaching, which Dr. Jim Bankson asked me to do, I um, had to come on the staff. And that's why sometimes I'm in the order of service and sometimes not. So when <clears throat> I began teaching Ordinary Life, we didn't have any structure whatsoever, none. I think the second or third Sunday, somebody came to me and said, aren't we supposed to be taking up a collection? Which is the most religious thing some people know how to do. So... Um, I persuaded Maxine Fantini, which some who, some of you remember her, if she would, <clears throat> pardon me, once again step in and be the treasurer for the class, and she agreed to do that. We opened a bank account in the class's name, which years later we found out is not something we should have done. We didn't have a finance committee in the beginning of the ordinary life at all. In those days, the church was very active in a medical clinic, a day school, uh, and a fledgling beginning church in Cochabamba, Bolivia. At that time, Nora and Wilson Boots actually lived there, and one of our clergy, the Reverend Natalie Negretti, came to us from that work in, in uh, Cochabamba. And every year... For uh, a number of years, this church 
And I think we've begun again this year, sent a team of people to Cochabamba to work in that day school and clinic and, and, and ministry. Uh, <clears throat> we were financially involved in the medical in mission work there. As a matter of fact, in, in 2009, Sherry and I went on a mission trip to Bolivia and we were involved in actual hard physical labor in uh, digging a foundation for the church that we is our sister church in Cochabamba, Bolivia. So we did that. I had a lot more in the class that I was going to tell you about that trip with a lot of pictures to Lake Titicaca and so forth, but um, too much, too much to do. Um, but it was it was great. We had a we had a wonderful time. This class was also involved in a medical mission work in Malawi. We had made a connection through a friend of mine with a doctor who was uh, boots on the ground in Malawi, dealing with AIDS patients and trying to provide clean water for people in Malawi. And we contributed quite a bit of money uh, to that. Uh, that was in 2006. I remember that one Sunday, we didn't have this set up. I was using transparencies and overhead projector. And um, I remember one Sunday word had come to us that a van that was used for medical mission work in Malawi, either we needed to purchase it or repair it or something, and we needed $1,200 immediately. And Wayne Herbert stood up in the class and said, I'll give $100 today. I want 11 other men to stand up and do the same. And we raised the money that day. It was a very loosey-goosey kind of organization, but it worked. So um, I'm, I'm glad for that. We didn't have a finance committee in Ordinary Life until 2004. And uh, this is a very generous class. And um, up until 2004, we gave money wherever people thought there was a need. They'd come to me or to, to Maxine, and two or three people put our heads together and say, that's a worthy cause, let's give to that. Every year for years, at one of the Christmas Eve services, Maxine Fantini would come to me and say, Bill, it's the end of the year. We've got X amount of money in the Ordinary Life checking account, three to $6,000, whatever it was. And she'd say, what do you want me to do with it? And I would say, well, just give it to the St. Paul's Christmas offering. And that's what we did. And nobody had a problem with that, and everybody was happy. So in the early days of Ordinary Life, I focused mostly on psychology and religion. And uh, I did <clears throat> the uh, principles of Ordinary Life. And for those of you who have never seen them or don't know what they are, they are, we suffer from wanting to be one up on life. There's no life in negativity. This is the one, the next one that's gotten me the most negative feedback. We have a moral obligation to be happy. Our relationships to life difficulties belongs to us. We are what we think. Life is wonderful. Love is what changes the course of our world. The fundamental purpose of life is emotional and spiritual growth. There is only the present. We get what we give. That's 25 years ago. And um, these are not original with me. These are my original way of saying some principles that have been uh, in the spiritual arena since the first actual age. Um, which you can read about in 12 Steps to Compassion with, by Karen Armstrong. Uh, this is just my way of saying. This is in, the, I came up with these during the four years that I took a hiatus from teaching the Mind and Spirit class here and did analytic training and that sort of thing. So that's what, that's what that was about. And that's what I taught until September the 11th. 2001, which is when you started coming here. At that point, I went after fundamentalism in all its forms. And that's when I began teaching about biblical, religious, and spiritual literacy. There were a lot of people who didn't like that, and they left. 
They left the class, and some of them left St. Paul's. And when we get more into uh, either later today or into coming Sundays, you'll see why it is that fundamentalists have such a closed-minded, negative, even angry reaction to something that doesn't agree with their particular point of view. So time passes, and Dr. Jim Bankston, who served here for 19 years, retired. Our new senior pastor became Tommy Williams. Tommy Williams had been an intern here at St. Paul's, and I thought that his appointment here fit this church like a glove. Tommy could have been the chairman of any Fortune 500 company. He knew organizations. He knew how to run an organization. When he came on, he cleaned house. He brought a good staff of people around him. One of those people was Dr. Matt Russell. Matt Russell and I bonded immediately. We're both sevens on the Enneagram. And um, I don't remember the exact chronology of this, but Tommy asked Matt to ask me what the succession plan was for ordinary life. And um, honestly, I had never thought about it. Um, so I told Matt that. I said, I don't have one. But I took it as a great compliment, not for me, but for the class. Um, in case you don't know it, ordinary life is an integral part of the life of St. Paul's. As a matter of fact, I was going to do a screenshot of this, but I didn't. If you go to the St. Paul's website and just scroll down a little bit, one of the hot links that you will see on the bottom of the St. Paul's home landing page is a link to this class. And if you go hit that, you'll go to the Ordinary Life website. And um, I think it's a pretty cool website, thanks to Wayne Herbert, um, it just looks cool. Holly's artwork is there, and it's a good website. And, and um, some really smart person advised us not to use the word succession because it might think, let people think that I'm about to quit or something. Um, so Matt and I brought some people together. I don't think there was any election process about it. It was just like, Either who would like to be on this, or we think this would be a good person on it. So that committee uh, consisted originally of me and Matt, Holly Hudley, Brooke Summers Perry, Richard Wingfield, Lynn Shroth, John Watson. I don't remember who else. And the original purpose was to kind of help Bill and to see what we were going to do. Matt and I had great plans for the future of this class. We had it mapped out. So, uh, and we tried some things. Um, we swapped Ordinary Life with the middle, St. Paul's had three services at that time. And we swapped the people here so that I did the 945 service and 945 people came here. Ordinary Life people went to 945 service. We did that twice before we figured out that doesn't work. We tried to have lunches with uh, putting the 945 people and the Ordinary Life people together in here. We did that a couple of times. That didn't work. But on any given Sunday during that period of time, you might see Matt, Bill, Holly, and Brooke up here, all four of us. You could see three of us. You could see... Uh, Brooke by herself, Holly and Brooke together, any combination of people. We were just having fun and seeing how we were going to make it in, into the future. We called ourselves conspire and ourselves co-conspirators. So um, it, was, it, it, it was a fun and good time. So um, Brooke Summers Perry got involved in a program that led her to be a certified spiritual director. And as you know, things arise and they fall away. 
And Brooke decided that she didn't want to continue doing this. As a matter of fact, she wanted to strike out on her own, and she has done that. You can look her up, I'm sure, by Google. She and I are meeting Thursday to talk about an app she's developed for, guess what? Daily spiritual practice. That's true. That's true. Brooke's a fine person and did, did a great job. So Holly decided that she did want to continue that, and so um, we continued on, experimenting and playing and doing various things, and time passes, and Tommy Williams decides that he can no longer be at St. Paul's because he can't fully support St. Paul's stance on full inclusion, so he leaves. Um, Jeff McDonald comes. Matt Russell leaves. Um, I may be mistaken about this, but I think what we now refer to as the steering committee morphed out of need. We needed somebody to do name tags. We needed somebody to kind of keep up with the roster. We needed somebody to host happy hours. We needed somebody to help when Curly Endowment events came together. So we, those people who helped in those events eventually got put on a steering committee. I think that's pretty well uh, how that happened. Um, now, keep in mind, the original purpose of the steering committee had been to help Bill and to plan for the future. So when I would take time off, I used to take a month off every year to go on pilgrimage. And uh, during that time, Holly would teach or be responsible for teaching. Um, then in March of 2020, the world changed. Holly and I were already scheduled that Sunday to teach together. And when we showed up, nobody was here except him. Because people had been posted at the doors of the church and of the Jones building in case they had not gotten the word, we were not having in-person meetings because of COVID. As we shut down. So Holly and I co-taught as we had um, so often and I remember sitting here asking Holly at the end of that first presentation, that first teaching time, would you be willing to come back and teach next Sunday or so? I'm sure this COVID thing isn't going to last more than two or three weeks. <laughs> and I will just tell you, though I have done it and I can do it, it is really difficult to do a teaching like this to a camera. Somebody in the room makes the energy work. So um, we did this every Sunday until June the 7th of 2001. Holly never got paid for what she did. But I could not have done this without her. I could not have done that. That is 16 months that's a long time. And thanks to live streaming and to the ability of people to donate online, both Ordinary Life and St. Paul survived. A lot of churches who did not have that capacity went under during COVID. So we are so fortunate to have had that all in place. So after we came back from COVID, we just continued doing what we were doing. And uh, I do not know what would have happened if we had been allowed to find our own pace, but we weren't. So there, wanted, there were some folks who wanted things to go back to the way they had been or they thought they were prior to COVID. Some didn't. Some didn't care. Some didn't know. And the way that was handled, and I take full responsibility for my share of it being done poorly, created some differences among people on the steering committee and in the class. Um, fast forward, as you may remember, last year I asked for, and the steering committee generously gave me almost three months off at the end of the year to move our residence. And during that time, um, we had, I was here every Sunday, but during that time we had a, a, a 
list of outstanding speakers to come and speak to ordinary life. And I would introduce those folks. And some folks on the steering committee got the clever idea that maybe after the first of the year, we should continue with outside speakers coming in from time to time. That way, we wouldn't wear Bill out as he's getting old, you know, and he won't last forever. And some folks didn't like that either. I remember when uh, Jim Bankston invited me to come on the staff here, he said, I want you to have an office here. And I said, Jim, I'm not going to do that. And I avoided doing that for a while. And when I did come here, I said, you know, Jim, there are going to be some people who are not happy with me having an office in the church doing what I do. And Jim said, well, one of the things I've learned in ministry, you can't please everybody. It's what I want, so it's what you do. Okay. He was the boss. So that was wonderful. So over that, that, those recent months since coming back from COVID, it became clear to some of us that it would be helpful if we had an outside, quote, expert come in and give us some feedback to help us determine what the steering committee is, how it functions, does it have a future even? Should we have a steering committee? If so, how do people get on it? How do they get off it? How long do they serve? We've never had any of those kind of, quote, rules like a regular board of directors would have. It's just been fly by the seat of your pants kind of thing. But it's become obvious that we need that outside help. So we hired a consultant. And that person is in the process of interviewing not only people on the steering committee, but interviewed Jeff, interviewed, interviewed people who are not on the steering committee. They, she hasn't talked to me yet. Um, but anyway, what I just told you is an interim report of what's going on behind the scenes. And um, I took too long to do it. But it, you need to know that. You need to know the history of that, and you need to know kind of what's going on. So uh, as for me, I mentioned in the sermon last week, and if you didn't hear that sermon, I really would appreciate it if you go listen to it. It was a sermon. I mentioned in that sermon that David Attenborough has become my new role model. David Attenborough is 96 and he's still going strong. And I am energized and I am excited about the agenda and vision I have for my own teaching. And if I live to be 106, I will not exhaust that um, agenda and, and the energy. Um, I do, because circumstances in my own life have somewhat changed, find it helpful to have other people come in and speak from time to time. It takes a huge burden off of me. From the very beginning of my teaching life, which is longer than I want to say, long before I came up with these principles of ordinary life, I had a commitment to a few very basic things that are important to me. There is first a commitment to follow new light wherever I knew it to be light, new light whenever I saw it, um, and a willingness to go wherever that light leads me. I don't feel bound by doctrinal fences. Molly Ivins, the newspaper columnist, and if you want to laugh out loud this afternoon, go home and Google Molly Ivins, I-V-I-N-S, quotes. You will laugh out loud, I promise. She's a Texas writer, political commentator, outrageous woman. I think there's a documentary about her life um, that, that we've seen. Um, she once wrote, once you realize they lied to you about race in the South, you wonder what else they've lied to you about. And that was me. Like perhaps many of you, I grew up in a sea of mixed and double messages. My father was a racist, actively, and yet he had a black woman living in his house charged with the responsibility of taking care of his children. I grew up in a church 
that was filled with people who loved me unquestionably, who taught me, they taught me the Bible, they taught me that Jesus loves all the children of the world, black and yellow, brown and white, they are precious in his sight. They raised tens of thousands of dollars for an endeavor they call foreign missions. And yet they didn't give a hoot about people of color in our community. And that just didn't make sense. So questioning, uh, and the answers I got to most of my questions were, be patient, or you'll understand it better when you grow up. But questions and questioning and questing have been part of my identity since I was eight years old. Second, I have wanted to find and offer a religious spiritual way of seeing that didn't insult anybody's intelligence. I had a deep knowing, an intuition, that there was a truth to be found in the religious teachings I was being exposed to, but the way they were presented to me just didn't make sense. And thirdly, connected to that, I wanted to teach a content that was not sectarian or exclusive. The claim about Christianity being the best and only religion and without believing in Jesus as your personal savior, you were destined for an eternity in hell, has never resonated with me. And as a union analyst, psychologist, whatever you want to call what I am in that part of my life, I would say to you that if something doesn't resonate with your soul, don't follow it. But if it does, do. And don't just go for something because some authority said, this is what you have to believe. Check it out for yourself. Believe what feels right and what's congruent for you. I'm not hard-nosed about very much. I do want to practice tolerance and inclusion. However, when it comes to fun fundamentalism, I am hard-nosed about its dangers. And this includes all forms of fundamentalism, political and religious as well. No one that I have met on my life journey so far has known all the truth. No one that I have known has been right all the time. And being concerned about the continuing rise both in numbers and volume of Christian fundamentalism in this country is a major concern for me and I think it should be for you because of the rise of what we call Christian nationalism. There are several people, some in this room and some outside, who have sent me um, this article. <clears throat> now, uh, the Southern Baptist is the United States' largest Protestant denomination. It was my denomination that I grew up in. And they are busy purging their denomination of clergy and churches that allow females to serve in forms of leadership. You could care less about this, but this is the canary in the gold mine. This is what's happening in our country. These people are in positions of leadership politically and religiously. This is what split the Methodist Church, not this issue. And we ought to be very concerned about this. We've had a lot of red flags waved in our faces, but before this, this is the direction that the current leadership of the church and the nation want to take us. I'm going to talk next Sunday, uh, the next time I talk in here about, about how that puts, this puts us in a kind of exile. Now, I am really pleased and satisfied, at least at the moment, I'm a seven, uh, with the theme that Holly and I came up with for the themes of teachings in ordinary life going forward, making sacred the sacred journey. That, by the way, is her artwork that you see. So, this gives me a chance to answer a question that was raised about the use of language 
in my teaching. What does it mean to use words like divine or sacred or mystery or something like that? Um, the idea for the theme we took from the writings of the poet Wendell Berry, who wrote, there are no unsacred places, there are only sacred places and desecrated places. Now, I first heard him say this in a long interview that he had with Bill Moyers. And uh, just to brag a little bit, Bill and I went to seminary together before he became Lyndon Johnson's press secretary. Uh, this is also in a, in a book that Wendell Berry has of poetry. Um, I think it's called How to Be a Poet. Um, <clears throat> so th though a whole lot more could be said, I want to say two brief things about this. Um, how, how can you put into language what can't be said? And yet we have to try. Um, if one purpose of our gathering is to fill, fulfill the commitment to grow psychologically, spiritually, intellectually, we have to use language about what we think, believe, know, and experience. Language is one of the things that sets us apart as a species. Our ability to talk, not communicate. Remember, there's a huge difference between talking and communicating. It's impossible in the presence of another person for your behavior not to communicate something. But talking is different, and we, we have that uniquely. Second, the risk of using this phrase about sacred and desecrated places runs the risk of creating the illusion of duality. And duality is the chief enemy of wise and useful spiritual and religious teaching. There is one reality that makes up our lives. It is not that there is a section of life and living called religious and another called secular. We use those distinctions, but ultimately, the religious and secular are not two things, but one thing, and that one thing is life. All right? Our spiritual work, it seems to me, is to stop the desecration of that life in whatever form it shows up. Or to put it another way, to restore to all areas of life and to people the creative dynamism that all life deserves so that we treat all that is and all who are with care and compassion. Now, some of the most holy work being done in our culture today is not happening in the church. It's happening outside of the church, in parachurch organizations. In uh, Father's Day lunch I had yesterday, I sat with my son, who, along with Wayne Herbert, staffed the most recent Mankind Project weekend. And tears came down his eyes as he was telling me about the power of that weekend. It's a spiritual, sacred, holy event. People's lives are changed. And there are other organizations outside of the church. And a lot of people are going to those organizations and not coming here. So whatever you do when you leave here, whatever you do with your life, uh, and this I learned from my first teacher, George Doherty, figure out a purpose so that whatever you are doing, you can contribute to your growth in love and compassion and honesty and freedom. Whatever you do, to, whether it's to make a living, whether your role is a parent or a partner or a friend or whatever, so that you can do that. We're going to need to learn to think and live this way if we're going to save this planet. If we don't learn to see everything as sacred, we're going to desecrate everything. There's only one world, and it's a marvelous one and a miraculous one, and I'll get to the issue of miracles later. And because there is no place on this earth where that energy we call God is not present, there's no place that is not sacred. There is no person who is not sacred. Or if the word sacred is problematic for you, everything and everyone deserves respect. And if we do not honor that principle, we desecrate what is. 
Now, I've constructed a way of going forward teaching about this, and I've already referred many times to the work of Ken Wilbur. Those of you who want to know about it can Google it and find out about it. Just be aware that it's like background music in, the, in my mind as I'm working on these talks. It's the painter's palette from which I draw different colors to paint. Wilbur is, uh, has done to psychology and philosophy and religion what Stephen Hawking tried to do to physics. And if you read Ken Wilbur and understand him, call me. I will buy your lunch. You can explain him to me. There's just a wealth of resources out there that we've not touched. And sadly, the, the place that's m left this material most untouched is organized religion. So the metaphor that I've come up with for the journey into greater awareness is that uh, we're walking a path that paradoxically is no path with an evolving understanding of and relationship to the mystery we call God in one hand, an evolving understanding and relationship with the mystery that we are in the other, and we're going to walk a path that is being illuminated by the life and teachings of Jesus. Now, why Jesus? Well, this is a Christian church. Kind of makes sense. But also, Jesus is in the DNA of every Western person. That's just there. And it's important to have correct information about Jesus rather than misinformation. And we're going to get into that. Um, now, I don't know if you pay attention to the previews that go out about this class or not. If you don't get them there, you can sign a form in the back of the class. But I ended up calling today's class How Things Seem to Me. And I was going to call it originally, when I first started working on it, no more rear window religion. And I got that idea from a story um, uh, I got behind. Here we go. I got that idea from a story I read about this car. Uh, this is a Polestar. It's an electric car. You know about the Polestar? It's going to be available in the United States next year. Polestar is a division of Volvo. And what's interesting about this car, it has no rear window. And the argument the manufacturers make is that since backup cameras are now required on all newly manufactured vehicles in the U.S., these cameras provide a better and more comprehensive view that one gets by glancing up at the rearview mirror. Perhaps. Now, you need to know Texas law is still going to require that you have a mirror, so there is an outside mirror on that car. I will not own one of these cars. They start at $60,000, unless, of course, you change your mind about giving me a jet, and <laughs> you know, as a seven, uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a gadget guy. I love gadgets. I can't keep up with technology, uh, but I love the gadgets and gizmos on my car. My car is five years old now, and it's got all the bells and whistles that you could get on a car at that time, a GPS map. Actually, the map on my phone is more accurate than the map in my car. Some of you have noticed that. It's got hands-free um, phone calling and a bunch of other stuff, which I find more distracting because I have them. Trying to make a, a hands-free phone call in the car keeps you from looking at the road, to me, you know. Um, but it, I can play podcast and get all my, my stuff and whatever. So the story about this car got me to thinking. I took a tape measure yesterday, and I went and measured the size of my windshield. It is really big. The windshield on my car is 60 inches across. It's 32 inches from top to bottom. That's huge windshield. That's the windshield looking forward. In comparison, the rear view mirror in that car is 10 inches by 3 inches. Now, I'm not a math expert, but my windshield is probably 100 times bigger than my rear view mirror. 
Now, right now, it seems to me that a lot of people, I'm thinking particularly about politicians and religious people, those who've got the biggest megaphones, are trying to steer by looking in the rearview mirror. They're fixed on what they can see, what they think is behind them, the way they think things used to be. And many with the power to make decisions that affect the well-being of all of us are using past memories that are incorrect and experiences that have been selected, shaped by a culture and a demographic that no longer exists, to guide them forward. Now, if we drove our cars like that, we'd have a lot of wrecks. Why would we run our religious lives like that? I'm not saying the past doesn't matter. It does. We'd be stupid if we didn't try to learn from the past. And I was told in high school the reason we study history is so we don't repeat the past. Well, how's that working? <laughs> We're still at war for other kind of primal instincts, I think. And I'm not denigrating the past. As a matter of fact, in Methodist theology, that what's called the quadrilateral is very important. But so that tradition plays a part in that. But it's only a fourth of that. Scripture, reason, and experience are the other three that play even more important picture. So the current band uh, move to ban books and re rewrite history into something that never happened is like willing to have amnesia. And it's such a juicy combination of ignorance and stupidity. We're not meant to live our lives looking in the rearview mirror. Otherwise, we're headed, which our culture seems to be, toward an awful smash-up. Now, I want to spend some time talking about how the current path that Christianity is walking got constructed. I'll do that in the coming weeks. But right now, suffice it to say that part of what I'm calling rear window religion is a view of religion that doesn't allow for a gathering like this. That's why in the beginning or initially when people first come to ordinary life, they will see things like, do they know what you're teaching across the street? Yeah, that sort of thing. Or this is not your regular Sunday school class. It's not supposed to be. Real truth does not need to be defended. If it's true, it's true. It came to be, however, that religious truth has been shielded from debate, which turned the religion most of us have been exposed to into an activity that was not in pursuit of truth, but in pursuit of a security system. So when we're rear window religion is seen for what it is, we can see why when it is questioned, it makes people furious, even murderously enraged. So I'm 86. I've got a lot of stuff in my personal rearview mirror to look at. When we relocated our residence about six months ago, I jettisoned most of that stuff. And um, the physical stuff, the mental, emotional part is still there along with cherished memories and photographs. Thank grace for digital stores. But I personally really need a big front window to look through. Because that's where I'm going to spend the rest of my life, not back there. I want what I offer in here to be wise and useful and as accurate and as possible. And as always, don't take my word for it. Go check it out for yourself. But let's make a deal. Don't tell me that having a daily spiritual practice doesn't work for you until you've tried it. And by tried, I mean 90 days. And then we'll talk. You know, the other thing I was thinking about, about a title for today's talk, was The Hungering Dark. I got this title from Frederick Buechner's book of the same name, and uh, we might amplify on that um, 
going forward. Frederick Bigner played a huge role in my life and in the life of many people who are in the ministry. He was a combination novelist and Presbyterian minister who just had the ability to capture in words what a lot of us feel but could never articulate. Um, and one of the things that Beekner's book, what this book is about, is how darkness and doubt can fuel our hunger for God. I have a hunger that's satisfied by this journey that I've been describing. My hunger for what Jesus and his teachings provide is deep and pervasive. I think yours is too, otherwise you wouldn't be here. Any God who's threatened by or any belief about such a God that's threatened by new truth is not worth following. I am a believer, but the God I know is not concrete or specific. The God I know is shrouded in mystery, in wonder, in awe. And where I get my best understanding, not the only, but my best understanding of this God is in the life and teachings of Jesus. And so we make this journey. And for those of you who wonder how long we're going to be doing this, how long I'm going to be doing this, I want to read you a prayer from Judaism. This prayer just found me this week. So I hope you like it. Birth is a beginning and death a destination. And life is a journey from childhood to maturity and youth to age, from innocent to awareness and ignorance to knowing, from foolishness to discretion and then perhaps to wisdom, from weakness to strength or from strength to weakness and often back again, from health to sickness and we pray to health again, from offense to forgiveness, from loneliness to love, from joy to gratitude, from pain to compassion, from grief to understanding, from fear to faith, from defeat to defeat to defeat, until not looking back or, or ahead, we see that victory lies not at some high point along the way, but having made the journey, step by step, a sacred pilgrimage, birth is the beginning and death a destination, and life is a journey. Amen, and so be it. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, you remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and I hope to see you right here next week. Thank you.